This episode is brought to you by Element. That's L-M-N-T. What's Element? Element is the product that came into my life at exactly the right moment. I've been training hard. I've been sweating like a maniac. But unfortunately, after my sessions, I could never kick that feeling of dehydration. It didn't matter how much water I drank. In fact, the more water I drank, the worse it got. My body was telling me, you need more. You need electrolytes. But I refused to go and buy some sugary sports drink and put that garbage into my body. Enter Element. What's Element? It's a tasty electrolyte drink mix. That's right. I said tasty. They have seven different flavors. My personal favorite is mango chili. But most importantly, it's got no sugar. It's got no gluten. It's got no garbage. There's got no guilt. Take it. You'll feel better. You won't feel like a bum after you drink it. You won't feel any guilt after taking it. To get your element today, go to drinklmnt.com backslash George Mahoney. Again, that's drinklmnt.com backslash George Mahoney. Get yours today. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Mahoney Advanced Training Podcast. Today, yet again, we have another special, special guest. This one is, uh, has long been awaited on the program. We had a lot of people ask me to ask certain questions to this, this man. It is Lyle McCombs, one of the most storied athletes. I, I was going to say in Staten Island, but I will say probably in the, the state of New York. He was a running back in the double wing offense at St. Joseph by the sea. He went on to play in the big East. He played in the Canadian football league. He played in the indoor football league. I hate long intros. So we're going to stop it there. Lyle, thank you for coming on the show. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Thank you. So Lyle, again, this is a long time coming and we're going to go back a a long time in history. So that there's an infamous drive where the great uh, St. Joseph by the sea Vikings are going against the, perennial powerhouse St. Anthony's Friars it's a Friday night game you're in Long Island I believe they uh they call it Melville Long Island I could be wrong about the town and you guys are trying to drive to close out this nail biter of a game and really make history because St. Anthony's I think at the time hadn't lost I don't know an x amount of years at home on a Friday night and Coach Hench tells me, and you can verify this is true, but you're on, basically it's the last play of the game. If, if you get a first down, you win. If not, they get the ball back, and who knows what's going to happen. And you're, there's a timeout, and you go to the huddle, and you say to Coach Hench, if you don't give the ball to Andrew Armato on 24 power, you're crazy. So, and, and now, meanwhile, you're the most prolific uh, running back in the state. Is this, is this a true story? And, and if it is, why did you say that? Uh, so, yes, that is a true story. Um, we needed about four or five yards to get the first down and seal this game. Um, and the reasoning for me saying that was really um, my belief in my blocking. Um, I really thought, I really think that I'm a good blocker and I take pride in it. And so at that point, I really wanted to win the game. And it was an easy thing for me to say, give me the ball so I can close it out. But I knew that if I can at least get on that inside linebacker on that outside shoulder and drive him in just a little bit, Andrew will fit right behind me and we'll get a first down for sure. So I know for a fact that Andrew can run the ball and I know for a fact that I can block. So it was really, I wanted to make that block to seal the game rather than make that run, if that makes sense. And, uh, and what was the end result of that play? Um, To be honest with you, I'm not too sure if he, if he actually gave it to him. Uh, it was a long time ago. I want to say he did, and we got the first down, but I don't remember the exact situation if he actually gave it to him. But I do remember telling Coach Hench, you need to give Andrew the ball. And I remember saying that because I really wanted to block him on that play. 
because I, I knew if I just made that one block that we would seal it up. So um, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I made that long, long, long ride there. I was not coaching on the staff at that point in that long, long ride home. I think I'm still tired from that trip, but I'm pretty sure you guys got that first down and sealed and sealed the game. At least, at least as coach, as coach Hedges memory serves me correct. Uh, when he's telling me the story. So I'm pretty sure you got it. Yeah. And, and that doesn't sound like a lie to me. I just can't remember off the top <laughs> of my head. Um, but what I do know for a fact is I wanted to block on that play. And that's the number one reason why I said that. And, and that was a game that I really wanted to win to make history. And so the main reason I told him that was because I wanted to make that block. Um, because I knew if I made that block, Andrew's going to do his thing and get the first down. So, so let's get into blocking because you are, for lack of a better word, a prolific running back. You set all sorts of records at, at every level that you played at. Uh, I watched film of you and you see you, you are burning past people on the field. Once you get into the open field, why, oh, why did you take such pride in blocking? Um, it, I mean, the word pride just comes to mind. It's just like a pride thing. I don't want to have assignment on a play. My, the guy that I got to block, he's the one that makes the tackle. Right. So it was about taking pride in my assignment because I knew if I did that, then, you know, the team would do better and we would win games. And also, I did not want to be known as just that prolific running back that is just good with the ball in his hands. I wanted to show everybody, including the coaches, the people in the stands and myself, that I can get gritty with the linebackers, with the linemen and block as well. And of course, you know, Coach Manos drilled it in my head that if I wanted to be a defensive one running back, everybody can run with the ball and that's cool, but it's the guys that block that separate themselves. So I really took that to heart. I took pride in it and it took me a long way. And just for people that don't know you, and I'm sure there's not a lot who listen to this podcast that don't, but what, what were your dimensions in high school? Like how tall were you? How much did you weigh? Um, so my senior year of high school, I was five, seven and 150 pounds. So, yeah, so we're not, for people that don't know Lyle, we're not talking about a, a fullback. He doesn't look like Mike Allstott. He's 150 pounds, a, a one of the two wings in the double wing offense and blocking like a maniac out on the edge. It, yep. And Lyle, just your most, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but is your most viral high school video a block? Like, is it, is it that block on a crackback? Uh, so it's, it's between two. It's, it's, it's either that block at Farrell or it's that diving catch that I made at Iona my sophomore year. Between those two. Um, but you're probably right on the block because that was at that was at home against Farrell. The whole island was there, and everybody saw me do that one. So that's probably number one on the list. So a quick changing of gears before we get back to the blocking part. What team would you consider your greatest high school rival and why? So I would say my greatest high school rival was Farrell. It was definitely Farrell. Um, the reason being was because they were the only school on Staten Island that we played against, right? I mean, we were playing in the AAA or the CHSFL, so we were traveling to Long Island, most games, uh, you know, up in the Bronx for Mount St. Michael and different places. Um, so they were the only Staten Island local team that we played. So it was really one of the only chances that people got to see C stacked up against another team on Staten Island, right? And so you know, that, that island pride of being the best always took over. Um, the, the biggest crowds came out for the Farrell Sea game. So definitely 
Monsignor Farrell was definitely the biggest rival. Definitely disappointed that we couldn't play against them senior year either. Um, but Farrell was the biggest rival for sure. And did, I got, I'm thinking the two games you played as a sophomore, you lost at Farrell. Yep. As a junior, you won at C. Is that right? Yep, correct. So before you came to C, again, being this uh, prolific running back, did you have reservations about playing in the double wing offense? I really didn't. Um, I actually was excited about it because the little bit I understood of it, what I knew was that I was going to be getting the ball a lot. And that's really all I cared about. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't have any reservations. I was kind of, you know, I was on that mindset of do whatever coach says, um, you know, and just do it, you know, and it's not always about being pretty and looking pretty all the time. And, and again, the best plus was I was going to be getting the ball a lot. So I really was on the, the other side. I was really more excited about playing in it just so I can get the ball 30 times a game. Now, do you, how do you think this impacted the way you played football at a Division One level? Um, I think the double wing gave me the toughness that was necessary for me to, to grind out carry after carry in those games when I was up at the college level. Um, you know, the... Uh, the mentality of, of three and a half yards in a cloud of dust really took me a long way in my in my running back abilities because it it, it forced me not to be so frustrated because when you get up to the higher levels, it's funny like when you when you play the double wing offense, you rarely get tackled for a loss. Like we're always at least gaining a yard in the in the double wing offense going forward, going forward. When you get up to the college level, I was getting tackled for a loss a lot, um, a lot more than I was used to. I would say. And rather than getting frustrated about it, I would just say, I would just keep that three and a half yards in a cloud of dust mentality because eventually we're going to pop, right? Like that was always the mentality, three yards, three yards, then we break for the big one. So that really helped me when I wasn't, things weren't were looking bad in the game. I have 18 carries and, and I'm only at two yards a carry and, and things are looking bad. We just keep at it, keep at it until we break that, that long run. It gave me the mental toughness and it gave me the physical toughness to be able to even be a starting running back at the division one level at my size. Do you think the modern, I see you working with all sorts of people on Instagram, but I also see you working with football players. Do you think the modern football player, would they be able to do what you did uh, to have this will to play the double wing type of double wing style offense and then transition it over to college or would they just jump ship and transfer to a new high school? So I say, I'll say this from my experience, right? Because I, I did for a while coach, I did coach running backs out of high school in this area down in Miami for a short time. Um, the mentality of the younger kids these days is a little different. Um, I very much had the soldier mentality. Yes, coach, no coach, whatever you say goes, and I'm here to do it. The kids nowadays are kind of they're looking for more comfort, right? And like you said, they, they, you know, you got transfer portals going on in college. For me to say they wouldn't have been able to do it is unfair because I don't know, you know, every, every person is different, but at the same time, they probably would have looked elsewhere because it was, it was rare for a kid with my skills and my size to, to really look at this double wing offense and say, this looks like fun, right? Like I would rather, you know, catch out on the perimeter and do those things. Um, so I think the mentality of these new kids today is very possible that they probably couldn't just because of the whole mentality. They're really not, it's harder to get kids to buy in these days. 
And so they want, they're looking for that comfort. So maybe, maybe not, who knows? Um, but I think, you know, what I did is rare. I had a very rare mind state. I was on a mission. And I think that's what made me succeed in my role. Can everybody do that? Probably not. Um, but, you know, to, to say they can't is, is a little unfair, in my opinion. Now, you, you also had a great battery mate in the backfield. We talked about him before, Andrew Armato. Yeah. And at least when, when I hear about C football and, and your time period, they just people just can't say one name without the other. It's like you guys are linked forever in history when it comes to the C backfield. What, what was the dynamic between you guys? Um, me and Andrew were very, very, very close friends in high school and still are to this day. Um, but I mean, we were very close. I, went, I used to go over his house, at, you know, a lot of times after school, hang out with his family. His parents used to feed me. I used to eat dinner at his house. So as far as the relationship with me and him, we were locked in, you know, best friends, you know, one of my top friends in the school. As far as the dynamic on the field, we had a very good mix because we were so close. We were very competitive on that field. If I saw him run for four yards, I had to run for four yards. If he just got a 12-yard run, I got to get a 12-yard run. I'm looking at stats to see who ran for more yards, this and that. But at the same time, we were still happy to see each other do well. It wasn't like a competition where it's like, I hope he gets tackled for a loss or I hope he has a bad game so I can have a good one. It was a very much a competition, but still, we, we still like to see each other win still congratulated each other. So I think that dynamic was literally perfect. Um, and his dynamic too, running the ball with him, um, also gave me that, that, you know, the mind state that I needed to be at the next level when I was competing with other running backs for one spot, not to wish bad on any other running back, you know, but to, to be competitive, but wish the best for other people as well. So that dynamic that me and him had, worked great for us on the field but not only that but it gave me the mindset to be able to handle adversity when competing for a running back spot in college in the future so it was definitely good so Lyle why do you why do you think you guys had this healthy competitive environment versus jealousy or like uh, give me the ball more than Andrew like what, what was there a driver behind that or it just came naturally I think it was I think it was our relationship that we had off the field you know we weren't just cool at practice or cool when we were at school and saw each other. Me and him were very close outside of football, outside of school and everything. Um, so that was really what drove the friendly competitiveness because we were both, you know, we were both guys who wanted to be the guy at running back. Right. But at the same time, we were so close with each other. We wanted to see each other both win. So it was the relationship outside that really drove that good dynamic on the field. Um, you know, and helped me block for him when he got the ball. He blocked for me when I got the ball because we cared about each other's success. So it was really the relationship outside of football. It, it's just awesome when guys can just make each other that much better. Like I'm, I'm certain that that competition it carried over into the weight room. It carried over into sprints oh, after yeah. practice. You guys just make each other better. And, and I, I, it's, it would be crazy to see what your, either one of your lives would be like if the other one didn't exist. Literally, I was just going to say that, like, I can I can credit much of my, you know, division one success to Andrew, because him being there competing with me and really pushing me to be better is what ultimately got me to the level to be able to compete, right? Like, if I was just the only good running back at C and I was very satisfied in my spot, the grind wouldn't have been there and I wouldn't have put in as much work. 
to get to that division one level, but he really pushed me not only in our talks, but by his actions on the field, when I would see him grind out a five yard run and break three tackles, I had to do the same thing. Um, so I definitely can accredit my success after college to him and our relationship for sure. That's that's sick, man. It's giving me goosebumps on the back sure. of my neck right now. Just to, to give somebody a compliment like that for no reason, right? It's not like he's sitting in the room with you. You don't have to. And just to also hear your competitive spirit. I, I remember training you with advanced training. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing I just remember about you, we're going to cover this a little later, is you just hated to lose. Like, you just hated to lose. And mm-hmm. I was like, that's why this kid's great. He just he hates losing so bad. Uh, so that, that's awesome, man. I, I love it. Uh, next question for you. And it's kind of linked. We're kind of going a little bit of order of your life here. So you finish high school, you win two of the biggest awards on Staten Island, the Fugazi Award, the Al Favre Award. You think that every college on earth would be coming to knock down your door and offer you a free scholarship, but that wasn't the case, right? What was going on? Um, I wish I could tell you what was going on. (laughs) I wish (laughs) I could, but from what I would guess, you know, obviously it was my size. Yes, I had very good stats. I was the best running back in the city in the five boroughs, but I sat at five, seven, 150 pounds. It's not exactly aesthetically pleasing to a, a recruiter who's trying to recruit for a division one program, especially at the running back position. Right. Um, and I think too, what might've held me back from getting more offers is that I was really at a point after my senior year of high school, when I was getting these offers where I did not want to play I didn't want to switch my position and play defensive back. I was getting a lot of offers, play defensive back, play defensive back, obviously because of my size. But I refused a lot of that because I really wanted to run the ball. And I just really thought that that's what I was best at. And that's where I was meant to be. And so I, you know, I refused to be looked at as a defensive back. So I think that might have had something to do with it. But I think the obvious thing is my size. And, and I think another thing, too, is my location, right? New York City is not exactly a football powerhouse, especially Staten Island. Um, so, you know, that could be a reason that not every Big East and ACC and SEC school, SEC school was coming to look for me. Um, but luckily, I was able to get an opportunity, so. Now, Lyle, did anybody even think about asking to put you at, like, a slot receiver or did that was not really that that big of a position back in those days, which isn't really that all that long ago. I make you sound like an old man, but the game's yeah, changed yeah. a lot in the last <laughs> 10 years. Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, so I never I never was asked or was never told you can play slot. I think the reasoning behind that was because at UConn, I started off my freshman year at running back and doing so well. I was the running back. So that was pretty much it. And also the coaches that I had in college, they were very um, system oriented, meaning that they were not adjusting anything to their system according to our personnel, right? So we had the personnel, like I'm the personnel where you wanna have three receivers and you wanna have 11 personnel, one back three receivers with a slot to give me room. But their system was a two back, one tight end set. And I was the best running back in the system. So they weren't even looking for me to play slot receiver because within their offense, the slot receiver is not used that much. And I was the best running back and they wanted to use me at running back. So they never really thought about putting me anywhere else. Um, Those slot inquiries came in the later, um, you know, when I started playing in the CFL and the the indoor league, that's when I started getting those looks and people saying you could play slot. 
But in college, I was the workhorse running back. That's just what it was. And how did you end up getting recruited by UConn? Um, so uh, Coach Manos, one day I was sitting in his office. It's my senior year of high school. Um, I'm already known as one of the best backs in the city, but I don't have an offer yet. And this is my senior year. And so we're sitting in his office kind of talking about it, and he's kind of frustrated about it. And he just decides, I'm going to send your film out to, to every school I can. You know, so he just goes crazy sending out films to all the big time schools, Rutgers, all the big E schools. He, he asked me, what school do I want? I told him and he sent, he just sent film out. He made the highlight film and sent it out. And literally two weeks later, UConn came calling, thankfully. <laughs> so really it was just a, a, a kind of a lucky thing. And Coach Mano's obviously doing his, his due diligence for me sent out the film and they, and they called back. So it was kind of a lucky thing. And I, and I don't know if you know this story, but this is the story I hear is that the Chaminade head coach at the time knew the head coach of UConn at the time. And the Chaminade head coach was, his last name is Boyd. He was an NFL dude for years. And he said, uh, this kid is a nightmare to defend against. And I think his, his good word, just from what you did to Chaminade, I think it really helped seal that deal. I could be wrong, but this is what I hear. Wow. This is what's going on in the rumor mill. Wow. That is the first time I heard that. You know that, right? I don't know that. I think it's crazy that you didn't hear that story. The Chaminade coach had in with Edsel? With Randall Edsel? With Randy Edsel? So the, the Chaminade coach, uh, his name is his last name is Boyd. I don't know his first name. I apologize. The guy was a dude linebacker. He played for the Detroit Lions. He played uh, with my, my favorite linebacker of all time, Chris Spielman. So when, when the guy's in the NFL for about eight, nine years and is an all-star, his word goes a long way. And from what I hear, he talked to the coaches at UConn and said, this kid is a nightmare, a nightmare to play against. And wow. that, I think any and all doubts were removed at that point. Wow, what a blessing that is. Because I had no... I. So this day, like I just told you the story, I have no idea why UConn came calling. I just know um, Mano sent out film and he was like, yeah, I'm, I don't know what's going on. We're not getting offers. He sent out film and literally two weeks later, they, they called my house. My mom didn't even know who it was. They called my house. She left it the voicemail. I come home and she's like, yeah, some school called. I'm like, what school was it? She's like, Connecticut? Like, she didn't even know. I'm like, you mean UConn? Like Big East UConn? I'm like, can you call them back immediately, please? Like, I'm trying to go there. <laughs> so I had no idea. I had no idea. That's crazy. That, that is crazy. I think it's crazier that you don't know. And I think a good learning lesson for any young player out there who thinks, oh, man, I'm, I'm in the wrong system. I'm at the wrong school. Things work out. If you're doing everything right, the right people are going to notice and the right doors are going to open. So, so stop worrying about you, 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 and just keep working and working and working. And that, that wall is going to get broken down. Yep. Absolutely. So um, how long did it take you before you started getting considerable playing time at UConn? Uh, it didn't take me long at all, but I did a red shirt. So we had a running back, um, Jordan Todman, who was drafted um, my, in my sophomore year, he was drafted in the sixth round of the NFL. Um, so my freshman year, he was the guy. So I redshirted, which is, I just take a year. I don't play any games. All I do is go to practice. Um, and I go to all the meetings and participate in anything, but I don't travel to the games. And at the home games, I don't even wear equipment. I just wear my Jersey and I sit out a year. 
And then, so after you redshirt, you get four additional years of eligibility, right? So I redshirted my first year. Jordan Tanyan was the guy. He left early, um, declared for the draft his junior year and got drafted and that left the running back spot open. Um, my, you know, I was the next guy up as far as I was the next scholarship running back in line. Um, after Jordan Tideman left, and what they did was they brought in a transfer running back from USC named DJ Shoemate, I guess, because they figured I was a young running back, kind of small. They don't really know what I got. Let's bring in this transfer, right? They brought in the transfer. I duped it out with him in camp. Um, he ended up getting hurt right before the first game. I ended up getting a start in the first game. So this is after I'm coming off my red shirt. So this is my red shirt freshman year. This is my first year of eligibility. I'm duking it out with him for the spot. He injures his ankle two days before the first game. I don't know if I'm starting or not. His, his status is up in the air. The day of the game, they tell me you're gonna be the starter today. I took full advantage of it um, and had a great first game of my career. I had 24 carries for 140. 40 yards and, a, and four touchdowns. And from there, it was pretty much stamped that I was the guy. So I was, after I came off my red shirt, I really just got right to it. I really didn't have to wait long. <clears throat> so when they bring this uh, transfer in from USC, are you like, oh God, are you like, I've been through this before with our motto, let's go. No, so it was really at first, so it's funny, at first it was very intimidating. And I'm like, oh, transfer from USC and he's older. Well, I'm not going to play this year. <laughs> you know, I kind of took like when I first heard the news, I'm like, damn, so they don't they don't trust me yet. I'm like, well, I'm not playing this year. It's cool. I'm going to grind it out and we're going to see. So what happens is he actually comes in. I see him in person. OK, he, he's big, but he doesn't look like he's in shape. Right. So I look, I, you know, I give the first look up and down and it, it kind of calms my nerves. I'm like, OK, he doesn't look like a Superman. Right. Like, then we do conditioning. <laughs> right we do the we're in winter workouts we did conditioning but we did gassers this guy is dying in the gassers like literally can't run him looks out of shape I'm like oh yeah I got this spot once I saw that I'm like I got this spot in the lock I'm not even worried all I'm gonna do is grind and at least in the middle of the season they'll figure out that I'm the guy <laughs> so that's how that went now did you guys end up having a, a similar relationship to what you had with Armado I didn't uh, no, I didn't. Um, the relationship wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a sour relationship. We were cordial. Um, but I felt very much competitive with him. And I felt, I felt a secret, um, like resentment towards him because he was the transfer that was coming in to take my spot that I was set in line for, you know? So it was kind of like, eh, I'm, I'm here to take your spot. Um, and it's really not, it wasn't, it wasn't that close relationship outside where we want to see both win. I was gunning for his spot. I'm not going to lie. Um, and he knew that. And, you know, again, it was cordial. Never, it was never animosity with us, but it definitely wasn't like the relationship it was with Andrew. And I'm guessing at running back in a non-double wing offense, it's, it's kind of like quarterback. There's usually only one guy, one guy at quarterback, one guy at running back. If it's wide receiver, you can have three on a team. If it's DBs, it could be four, it could be three, whatever. But there's multiple of that position where you have some leeway. And yep. featured back and quarterback, it, there's only one. That's it. There's only one, and the competition is fierce. Um, so, you know, I, I really was, was just – my goal at camp was to show them that I'm the guy. You guys can bring this guy in from USC, but you got to look at what you got right under you. 
So I worked my ass off that camp to show them that. And they still were denying me, denying me. I was showing it in camp. And then he, I think it was just meant to be because he ended up rolling his ankle a little bit. It was up in the air. And we're literally in warm-ups. And coach comes up to me. He's like, hey, you're getting the nod today. You're going to start, so be ready. You know? And from there, I was like, yep. And I took off. And I never let him have the spot again. <laughs> and what, let's, I got to backtrack a second. Because what is life like as a red shirt? Are you just a, a tackling dummy every practice? Pretty much. We play scout team. So, um, you know, I was the I was the scout team running back. Whoever we have, it, it was it was actually very fun because whoever we have to play this week, I, I get to be that running back. So um, just thinking off the top of my head, like the most memorable, like when we went to go play West Virginia my freshman year, they had Noel Devine. So I got to be him for a week, <laughs> you know. So I was wearing number five jersey and, and running their plays. And I'm really taking the like, I'm really trying to be Noel Devine for the whole week. You know what I mean? And that's pretty much what life was like. You go to practice, we play scout team offense against the starting defense, and they beat us up. Or, or if we have some pride in ourselves, we beat them up and then let the coach yell at them. And then, you know, just that's how it is. You go to practice, and then if the, home, if the game is at home, then you, you have to, you're mandatory, you have to go to the game, you wear your jersey, and you're with the team. When the team travels away, you just stay back on campus. So you're basically a regular college student, and you're just, you know, doing your thing I was I was definitely partying and, and things like that when I was a freshman so it was just a fun year for me you know just just enjoying I really just enjoyed that year being where I was at and and enjoying the labors of my work I got to get there so I had a good time I went to practice and I did my thing on campus you know I'm, I'm kind of surprised you said it was fun I guess part of it being the other guy is fun. And I'm thinking about the movie Rudy, where he's like, I'm the defensive end from Purdue. And I, I think that's what makes you a great football player is that you care so much. Just in, yeah. in my experience in college football or even high school football, that scout running back usually takes a beating because the, the offensive line just didn't, they're not good enough to handle the starting defense. Were you taking a beating? And well, you, you, you got to understand too, like coach Mahoney, it wasn't, we're, I'm in division one college now. So we we thud up when we when we practice. We're, we're practicing. It's thud up. Let them go. So yeah, I was taking a beating, but nobody was tackling me to the ground all practice. It was thud up. Let them go. You know, even and sometimes it was even tag off. You know, because in practice, they, when I got to college, it was starting to tone everything down where we're not hitting full speed every period in practice. Thud up. Let them go. Let them run. So as far as the beating, it, I took a lot of thud ups, but nobody ever brought me to the ground because it was practice. We weren't allowed to go to the ground in practice. So. I guess I'm also forgetting that I'm about, uh, I don't know, you probably got 12 years on you, maybe 15 years on you. So we did yeah. thud up when I was playing in college, but uh, we didn't go to the ground. But I remember very specifically, we had an all Ivy safety who had gotten in trouble. He couldn't play that week. And we put him at run, scout running back. And he was like ready to fist fight all of us because people were just <laughs> crushing him. And he was like, what are you doing? I'm one of you. And too bad. Sorry. You're, you're the scout running back right now. Well, that's uh, that speaks to his mentality about this football. You know, if you if you playing running back, you're not ready to get hit. You need to, you know, play another sport or something, you know. But me, you know, even though I was just on scout team, I took pride in it, you know, and I and I made sure that I gave my defense the best look. And I mean, take a beating. I got hit. But, you know, it's, it was nothing like the games. We thud up. You thud up and let me go. You know, it wasn't bad. So I want to transition into 
I think it was like maybe your last year, you start playing football at Rhode Island, you transfer there. How different, like how hard was it to learn a new playbook that fast? Um, when you determine to do something, nothing's really that hard. <laughs> um, it wasn't, it, and you got to understand too, by the time I got to Rhode Island, I've already dealt with um, three different offensive coordinators, three different styles of offenses. So I've learned new playbooks over and over again already at this time. And on top of that, I've already done every concept that they have in this playbook already. So when they introduce me a new play, yeah, the terminology may be different, but it's just inside zone concept at the end of the day. And we used to do this back in my sophomore year. Okay, the terminology may be different, but this is just toss that we used to run in my freshman year. Like, you know, the concepts were the same. And you know this, football is a copy, is a copycat game. Everybody's doing the same things. So if you know the concepts, it's going to be there. So I really didn't have to learn anything. They were running the same concepts that I've ran into every time that I've already been running, that I've already had 100-yard games in. Like, I've, it was just learning the, term, the terminology. So really wasn't hard for me. And what about the culture? How, how different was it from UConn to Rhode Island? Um, so, you know, I went from Division One A to Division One AA. So um, as far as the culture – um, you know, we just, the football team was not as spoiled as they were at UConn at Rhode Island. You know, our facilities weren't as nice. Um, but I mean, as far as the culture, everything was pretty much the same. It was, it was run the same. We still had a strict schedule. Um, the coaching was, was on point. You know, I wouldn't even say the coaching fell off from UConn to Rhode Island. The coaching was still there with the structure, with everything. Um, I would say the only difference is it's not really a, a very winning culture at Rhode Island as far as football. They're doing good nowadays. But at the time that I went there, it was very just a losing school. We only won one game when I was there in 2015. Um, so it was a very losing culture. And I would say that it was like the us as a system, we were very much used to losing. I, I think I wasn't you know used to that. People weren't taking losses to heart and it was kind of like weird. Um, but other than that, it was it wasn't much of a of a culture shock. Other than this isn't Division One anymore. You're not about to be spoiled. You're not going to get gloves every week. You're not going to get new cleats when you want them. You know, it, I had to kind of change the mindset a little bit on that end. But not much difference, man. And, and I would say I would say to anybody like who wants to play at the next level, it doesn't matter what level you play at Division One or Division Three. You're going to work as hard, and you're still going to have the same structure. So you know, wasn't much of a difference as far as culture transferring. <laughs> and what about, you know, after Rhode Island, you go play in the Canadian Football League. How did your game, your game style have to change at all with respect to their rule differences or their field size differences? Like, did you have to change anything about the way you played football? No, I didn't have to change anything. Um, the only thing that really changed was like the rules for special teams. So like when you're on punt team, there's certain rules that are different. Um, when you're on kickoff, there's certain rules that are different. Um, but all it takes is a couple of practices to work it, you know, a couple of special teams, periods, 20 minutes, and you're fine. Um, it's all football at the end of the day, just a couple of rules change, and you have to shift a couple of things. But really, playing in the Canadian League benefited the way that I played football up until that point because there's more space on the field, and I'm a killer in space. So it only benefited me, really. 
I, I guess I'm going to link back to the double wing. When you got out of the double wing, did you feel like you had all the space in the world because you came from literally no space? So it's funny that you say that. I actually felt the opposite. Okay. <laughs> now, now hear me out. Now hear me out, right? When you run in the double wing, right? Once you break that second level, right? The, the, we run in power. There's a great double team. The puller comes around and kills the linebacker. The backside linebacker comes, I shake him and he misses the tackle. Once I do that, it's clear sailing because there's nobody at the second level. Everybody's crunched in, right? When you break out, when you're playing in these spread offenses, these 21 personnel, two back, one tight end, where you have two receivers, right? And you break the D-lineman's tackle, make a move on the linebacker, you still have three DBs coming from three different directions that you have to get past in order to get that long run. So when I would break out of the second level, I felt like I had no room because I got the safety coming down right in front of me. I got two corners coming from the side and I have to make moves on them to whereas when everything was double winged and everything was compressed, once I got past the linebackers, it was smooth sailing. I don't even have to look at anybody else, look straight and run. Whereas in these spread offenses, when you get out of the double wing, you break out of the second level and you have three, four guys you have to get past on top of the pursuit coming from behind because everybody's fast. So it was definitely like harder for me at the next level to finish runs, finish those 60 yard runs, finish those 50 yard runs because it just wasn't a straight path down the middle and I just blew past everybody because everybody's condensed. Once I blow past the linebackers, I got to shake this safety while the corner is over here pursuing. So I got to shake him then I got to run. You got the linebackers pursuing and it was a lot more going on at that second level. So I definitely missed that about the double wing. Just once you get past the linebackers, it's smooth sailing, you know? For people that don't know, the double wing, there are no splits. There are two tight ends and two wings and a fullback. that You basically can play this game in a phone booth. And when, when you see Lyle McCombs break a run, you know, teams, they'll put all 11 guys in the box, and he's right. He breaks a run, and there's literally no one at the second level. The same thing, too, I could say, too, is on play-action pass, because you were such a devastating blocker, I mean, you'd be wide open sometimes because everybody's coming up the field. Yep. And so it made those, those long runs easy. So when I got to the second level, I really had to finish my runs, you know? It just wasn't get past the second level of the linebackers and run as fast as you can. I had to – there's a safety coming down right in front of me. I have to make a move on him. And then when you, when you take that one second – and shake and make a move. Now you have the whole defense conversion on you. So I got people coming from behind, people from the side. And so those runs that would be 60-yard runs in the double wing when I got past the linebackers would only be 13, 14-yard runs in this because I got a break pass. I got a whole nother level, and they're standing 10 yards further than they would be in the double wing. You know what I mean? So they're already right in front of me. So I did I hope two things are going on right now. I hope, one, there's some young running back listening to this. And two, I hope there's some guy, I won't say he's Coach Hench, because I, I, think, I think that ship has sailed for, for many of us. We're running the double wing ever again. But hopefully there's some double wing guy listening to this who's inspired that maybe, maybe just maybe there's another Lyle McCombs out there with this same mindset. And uh, there won't be all these running backs heading for the hills if they hear the words double followed by the word wing. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know, man. There's not too many guys out there with the mindset that a young Lyle McCombs had at at 14 years old, all I wanted to do was, was be the best at football and go division one. So I was willing to do whatever it took. And you got to understand too, like before 
I went to St. Joseph by the sea, like I was recruited by them. Like they gave me a scholarship to go there so that I could go to college. And so with that, you know, they, 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 I was seeing that as a better opportunity for my future. So if I had to play double wing offense in order to go division one, I, I was with it. Like, let's do it. You know what I mean? Like I it was no questions asked with me. The kids nowadays, I don't know, man. You know? And I'm going to ask a dumb question, but are you saying that that's that scholarship made you feel more, I guess, indebted to run what that coaching staff was telling you to run? Um, I think I would have been the same way wherever I went. Um, I think that was just the adder to any question that I had about the double wing, like this offense, stupid, this and that. Well, these is, this is what they're telling me to do. And, and, you know, they gave me the scholarship to come here and this is the best opportunity I got. So let's just go full in and, and you know, let's go all in and we'll see what happens, you know? And I think too, Coach Mano specifically really did a good job with the way that he ran the program to getting guys to buy in because I, I bought in. I just bought in off the first week of being around Manos. It's like, all right, I like this guy. I'm buying in. We doing whatever he tells me, and that's it. You know, so it's 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 hard to not buy in to him. You know, right. especially he's had the program for a few years. We have this uh, history of of running backs that are just blowing it up. Uh, you're the next guy in line with with Armado. You're following guys. I think it's like Brennan, Jello. I'm just rattling names off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Not all before him. There's just always been great backs at sea in tandem with great blocking that was going on up front and Coach Hench's mastery of that system and Coach Murphy as the running back coach. It was just a lot, a lot of good things combined that I think made this perfect storm. Absolutely. And, so uh, I, I, I want to segue into the indoor football league. What's the best thing about the indoor football league? Is, is that it's not cold? It's not as cold as Canada? <laughs> uh, well, you know, you got to understand, I played, we played in New York City, Coach Mahoney, and I played at UConn. So at this point, the cold is not, I'm not worried about the cold, right? Like, but the ultimately the best thing about playing in the indoor football league was it gave somebody like me who I just got released from Canadian football league and I was a young kid, 24. All I wanted to do was play football. I really... You know, I was I was really stuck in, and I couldn't accept the fact that my football career was done at 24, just getting released from Canadian Football League, things like that. So this league gave me an opportunity to keep doing what I love and to get filmed so I can get back to the Canadian League and maybe even to the NFL, you know, like, so it gave me that it's not over journey. I got cut from the, from the CFL. I got this opportunity and... You know, just, the, I mean, you, you're a football player, Coach Mahoney. You understand, like, when I was 24, 25 and playing in that league, the money didn't matter. The surroundings didn't matter. The, the chance of going to the CFL or the NFL didn't matter. I was putting that helmet on. I was putting my armor on, and I was doing what I love. So that was the best thing about playing in the indoor football league. Wow, I'm 44 right now, and I'll, I'll quit my job if the Giants give me one kickoff, man. I'm ready. <laughs> So, so you, 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 you can understand. I got this opportunity to play indoor. This is now, even though it's not semi-pro, this is professional football. These are guys that have been in the NFL, that have been in the CFL. I got an opportunity to lace them up, get on a bus with the guys, put on the armor, and play again. Hell yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. You know what I mean? And with a chance to go to move up. It doesn't get better than that. You're speaking to somebody who really loves the game. So I just was was happy to be playing the game. You know what I mean? Is there is there a worse thing about playing in the indoor football league? Like getting 
railed into a wall or no? Um, well, getting railed into the wall is not it, – it's a pretty bad thing about playing in the indoor league, but the worst thing about playing in that league is the money. You don't really make money. And that, when, when you're 24, 25 years old, that matters at this point, right? Like, it didn't matter up until the point when I was in high school – didn't matter that I had some money. It didn't matter that I didn't have money in college. I was chasing a dream and they took care of me. Now I'm older. Now, you know, life is different. I got to start making different decisions. I got a lady, I got this, I got that. I need, you know, I got to start making some money and I couldn't live off playing in the indoor football league. I just couldn't do it. As much as I would have loved to, I would have loved to just play football every week and make a living that way. But in the indoor football league, they pay you pennies. So you can't do it. And that's, Ultimately, the reason that I stopped after three years was because I couldn't live off of that. And as much as I was sacrificing, leaving, leaving the town that I'm in to go to some random city to play football, I needed more money. You know, I needed more finance behind me, so I had to leave. So that's, that's just the worst part about playing in that league, for sure. Now, were you, when you, I'll call it retired from professional football, were you beat up physically? Like, could you, could you have still done it physically? You just couldn't handle it financially? No, no, no. I was at the, I was at the top of my game physically when I left. Wow. The top of my game. I, and, I, and not only the top of my game physically, being the strongest, fastest that I was, I was at the top of my game skill-wise, right? Not only at this point was I a running back and excelled at that my whole career, but now playing in the CFL and playing in this indoor league, I was getting slot receiver experience. My routes were getting better. I learned how to work out at a high motion, which is um, the running start motion that you see in the, in the CFL. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yep. Yeah. So that running head start, that motion, I learned how to really work out at a high motion. Well, there wasn't a skill that I didn't have. So I was literally developing my game in the indoor football league and I left at the top of my game. So you, you don't have to answer this and, and I'll, I'll, I'll take one step back because my career in football is not even close to yours, but I'll say this. I didn't get to play my fourth year of college football because I didn't play my first year of college at Columbia. So I only played three years. And to this day, I still have these ridiculous dreams of that. I'm going onto the field of Columbia and I can't find my helmet or my shoulder pads are missing. And it's, I know it's because I didn't get to finish out what I wanted to finish out. Now your career is way longer and way better than mine, but is this type of thing still eating at you to this day or you put it past you and, and you've moved on? To be honest with you, at this point, I've definitely put football past me. Um, I definitely got over it quicker than I thought I would, but at the same time, it did take a while. Um, you know, I, I was, I was a wreck emotionally and, you know, and, and mentally for the first year or two after not being able to play football not having, you know, my future wasn't set. I was kind of in limbo. I was in, um, what they call it in Catholic, uh, purgatory. I was in purgatory. I was flowing. I didn't really know, you know, so mentally it, it, it may be down spiral a little bit. Um, but right now I would say it's definitely past me and I wouldn't, I would not take an opportunity to play football unless the circumstances were very good, meaning money, meaning I don't have to sacrifice much. I'm taken care of, you know what I mean? Like, and, and I have a, a, a decent spot to work for the starting job. Not they're just bringing me in to be second string or bringing me in to be a camp dummy. Like you have to be bringing me in and telling me that I have 
a good and equal opportunity to win the starting running back position. Because at this point, I've proved what I prove. I played, you know, I was a, one of the best college running backs in UConn history. I was, you know, one of the best backs in the indoor league. I feel like I don't have anything to prove to anybody anymore, even though I've been out of the game for four years now, but I'm not in the headspace to be proving myself in, in a camp and, and being that guy who's doing the extra things on scout team to prove that I'm, I'm just not in that space anymore. I'm very much put it behind me. I could definitely, I still have good five or six years left of football in me physically. Um, but it's just, you know, that whole, you know, the whole mental toughness and having to fight for a spot and, and at the professional level, it's even more politics being played into it. And at this point, I'm just not there mentally to still deal with that. So I would say it's mostly behind me, to be honest with you. At first, I didn't know where you were going with this. I didn't know that you were actually saying that you could still physically suit up and do it. But that's pretty sick. If you, I, I see you on Instagram. You look all jacked up, ready to go. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I love it, man. I, I love that you still, and, and I'm not doubting it for a second, that you're, you're still physically able, you in your mind, to go and, and suit up. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So what was the transition? So you leave the indoor football league. Do you go right into coaching and training people? Or, or what did you do to earn money after that? I went right into training. Um, so during my during my last year playing arena football in 2018, mind you, I'm having the best year of my career and, and I'm on the best team. And, you know, we went to the championship that year and lost, actually. Um, so that was the peak of my career. But during that, I was kind of seeing what was happening. I was performing the best in the league. I was the best running back in the league. Um, and I wasn't, I just wasn't getting looks from CFL and I just didn't see where I was going to go after this. And I really, what I was starting to see was me being stuck in this, just being an IFL running back. You know, I was already three years in the league. If the CFL or somebody hasn't seen me by now, I'm going to get stuck here. Um, so I started to make the transition during the season, during the season, I knew I was always going to train people. I loved working out. Um, you know, Coach Manos and, and, the, and the program at C really ingrained how important it is to train. Uh, so I always loved working out. I was training people already just on the side for fun or whatever the case, people I knew. So I knew the transition was going to be into training. So I, I started getting my certification and things like that during the season. Um, so that after when the season ended, I was going to be able to just transition smoothly. Um, so I got my you know, personal training certification during that last year of the season, I moved down to Miami and literally dove right into my personal training career. I probably was in an equinox within the first two months, three months that I was done playing back in Miami. So I just went straight there and the, the transition went, you know, not so smooth, but smoother. I planned for it. You know, I got my certification and then I went right into training after that. And so for I'm a guy who seems to like the cold, what made you go to Miami? Um, to get out of the cold, man, it's over <laughs> with. I, I didn't like the cold. I dealt with it. <laughs> <laughs> smart man. Smart yeah. man. I got to ask, what in the hell is kettlebells and brunch? Are people like uh, drinking mimosas and then doing kettlebell swings? Yeah. So kettlebells and brunch was an event that I had a couple of weeks ago at a brewery here. Um, outdoor kettlebell workout, um, you know, hosted by me. Afterwards, you can have brunch. Everybody gets a free drink and network and socialize and trying to get that kettlebell community built here in Miami. So that's all it was. 
what what made you become RKC certified? Um, just my my love and passion for kettlebells. Um, I love training with kettlebells. It's literally my passion and what I do now. Like my passion used to be football when I when I met you. Now the passion is kettlebell training. Um, the RKC cert is is your top cert that you can have as a kettlebell instructor. That's like the you know how you have your NASM for personal trainers. That's the most expensive and the best one. Your RKC is your most, you know, stamped and top certification for kettlebell instructors. So I wanted to make sure I had that under my belt um, because kettlebell training is my thing. And I'm really trying to take over that niche as far as fitness goes in Miami and my area or whatever the case is. So I, I'm going to give my one and only gripe about kettlebells. And this is from a person that doesn't have his own gym. It's just the one thing that's rough for me is getting all the different kettlebell weights or kettlebells into my garage. So is, is there a way around that or too bad you got to get different types of, of weights for these kettlebells? Um, you you, you got to just haul them in. So I, I'm not sure what the gripe is. Is it is it hauling them into the garage or having different weights? You just want one it's, weight for all or what is it's, it? It's space in my garage. I am a, a minimalist. So right now I got a... I have two 55 pound kettlebells and the second one I got by basically by an accident. So I, I wish I would have a 55 and like a, maybe a 70 pound kettlebell, but that, that's my only gripe. I think a great workout. I think it's sick. I just, my wife will probably kill me and I probably hurt myself if I loaded up my garage with all different types of kettlebell weight, kettlebell weights in the garage. Uh, I hear you. Um, I say that they don't take, they don't, they don't take up much space. Um, I, I would actually, you know, say the opposite of that is the benefits of kettlebells. You have two 55 pounders, they probably take up no space. If you add four more on each side, it probably take up two feet of space. It won't take up that much. I got three kettlebells in my home. They don't take up any space, you know? So are you thinking like that as opposed to like, a, I don't know, a squat rack, a platform? Yeah, if, I, if you're looking at it that way, then I might be changing my mind on this. Right, right. Like you, if you have a squat rack, that's taking up way more space than having a full set of kettlebells will, you know? Now, when you got your certification, was, uh, was Pavel there or no? No, he wasn't. I wish he was, though. <laughs> I wish he was. You, you know a little bit about Pavel? What you know about him, man? Oh, man. So uh, when I got into this strength and conditioning game many moons ago, there were two major influences in my life. One was uh, Christian Thibodeau, and the other was Pavel. And he had written power to the people. And I, I think when you, if you remember training with us, we were doing like two sets of five. And that was really his thought process. Like just do two sets of five, heavyweight, no time for warmups. You're just doing heavyweight. And now even to this day, a lot of my training is influenced by his two sets of five. And he really just focused on bench press and deadlift. Those were like the two main things. But it was about smoothing the groove and doing that two sets of five every day. So right now my workouts are like three sets of three bench press every day, deadlift every day, never sore. Anyway, Pavel was the massive influence behind that. But in the, at the end of that book, he's talking about kettlebells. And this is like, I don't know, 20 something years ago. I'm like, what is a kettlebell? Yeah. Started researching it more. And that's when I had started doing a poor man's kettlebell work with a dumbbell, but it's not, it's not, it's the same, but it's, you don't get the same impact, at least in my opinion of swinging that kettlebell around versus swinging a dumbbell around in the same fashion. Yeah. No, absolutely, because the kettlebell is uh, is distributed. The weight is di is distributed differently, so you're gonna get more of an impact swinging a, a kettlebell than you would a dumbbell. But um, 
yeah, man, you know, Pavel and the hard style kettlebell training, that's what I do. Um, his art, that's that RKC certification. That's his certification. It's all made up by him. I love the, you know, the mentality, not only like how the, the shirt is put together, but I like the mentality of it. Um, there's a conditioning test with the RKC shirt. You have to do a hundred snatches overhead with the kettlebell in five minutes. That is not with the weights that you're, and he has like different weights for how much you weigh. So depending on how much you weigh, you have to do a certain weight of kettlebell in that test. And the weights that he gives are not easy. Um, and so to get this certification, you don't just sit there in a room, be taught, and then say, okay, you're certified. Like, you have to do all of that, and then you have to pass this snatch test, which is not easy at all. So, you know, the RKC instructors not only have the proficiency and the information to teach you, but they do it themselves. And they do it at an elite level because 100 snatches in five minutes is not easy. So I just- And what do they give you, a weight based on your body weight? Yes. So, you know, from, from certain ranges have to do this way to kettlebell. And it's funny, right? So the weight class that I fall in, I fall in, I weigh 165 pounds right now, right? The weight class that I fall in um, is between 160, no, excuse me, 165 pounds and 200 pounds. What? And that, and that person has to do a 53 pound kettlebell, hundred snatches overhead in five minutes. So I literally fell right in the in the cusp of doing a heavy ass kettlebell and i'm doing the same weight as a 195 pounder that is some uh spectrum of weight to have doing the same kettlebell snatch exactly <laughs> and i fell right at the bottom um now you know i'm i've always been good with pound for pound strength so i wasn't worried about it but it was just funny that the test could have been way easier for me if i just weighed two pounds less or three pounds less the other uh, Pavel thing that really influenced our program to this day is hyper irradiation, where he talks about just breaking the bar or the kettlebell before you pick it up off the ground and just brace every part of your body. Absolutely. And, uh, I don't know if you remember that from advanced training, but man, it is something we stay to this day. If you're bench pressing, break the bar. You're doing a dumbbell bent over row, break the bar. Anything right. you're doing, break that bar. Back squat, break the bar. So yeah, Pavel, man, I, I never really talked about him with you, but again, he's still top three in my influences in the way that I train right now and the way I train people. That's very interesting. Um, but yeah, he, it, you know, I don't know if you've seen any of my stuff on Instagram, but when I set myself before the swing, you set yourself, push your hips back, bend the knees. And when you grab the bell, you break it in half so that not only you tense the body ready for movement, but it sets the posture, it sits the shoulders down and it puts the chest up. So we're at good posture before we swing too. Um, so yeah, definitely familiar with bracing everything and, and breaking the bar. I'm just surprised that, you know, being that Pavel is such a heavy influence that you're not working with kettlebells more, man. What's going on? Maybe you're talking me into it right now. I'll, maybe you're talking me into it. Listen, I'll say this coach Mahoney, and this is one of the reasons why I'm very passionate about this kettlebell training is because if I was doing this with you or, you know, before I went to college, or if I was training with kettlebells in college, I just think I was so explosive. It's, it's really crazy to think of how explosive I would have been unilaterally if I was doing kettlebells in college and kettlebells in high school. Um, and, and two, it's allowing me to, to have that same mentality of training hard and, 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 you know, going hard, but I'm getting a little older. So we got to chill with the, with the, uh, you know, with the bench pressing and the cleans and jerks and all that stuff that we used to do. Yeah, I still do it, but we have to relax a little bit because it's a lot on the joints. My body has a lot of mileage. I'm 30 now, 
and I got to relax. But with kettlebells, it's easy on the joints and I can still go hard, get strong, still be explosive and athletic, even though I'm not playing football, right? Like, that's the best thing, I think, in my opinion. You might be talking me into it. You might not, but you might be talking me into it, especially when you were putting it in perspective of like, yeah, I don't need a squat rack or a bench and I can fill that space up with kettlebells. Yep. And you'll have less space and you'll be able to do more. And you're talking about being a minimalist. It's funny that we're talking about Pavel. I literally just watched an interview with him on Joe Rogan's podcast not too long ago. And he's about 60 years old now. And, and Joe Rogan asked him, how do you work out? And he said, I only do two exercises. I do kettlebell swings and I do dips because I'm a minimalist. And you just talked about how you're a minimalist, right? Like, so he does two things. He does dips and he does kettlebell swings because that's all you really need. You have your hinge, right? You have your hinge with the swing, um, you know, and you have your press with the dip and you're working your quads within the hinge um, when you're being explosive with your swing. So you really, you mean, I mean, if you wanna have ultimately strong quads, you do gotta work the squat, but you're still working your quads in the swing, you're working your hinge, right? Your glutes, your hammies, and then with the dips, you're working your press. Um, so he just keeps it to that. Um, I mean, he doesn't look like the best physique, but at 60, he looks great. You know what I mean? So, yeah, he, he, I'm sure if you patted his back, it would feel like uh, plywood. The, the guy was like, you know, like a brick. And I, yeah. that was in his, I, I'd say, get this book. It's an old school book, uh, Power to the People that he wrote, but he just talks about that he's always fit. Like he's always ready. He's always primed for movement because of the way he trains. So yep. uh, I'm, I'm sure he's still a dude right now. Yeah, so, absolutely. What about animal flow movements? I, I see you doing those. I love those. Are they a nice uh, compliment to your kettlebell work? Yes, they're, they're the perfect compliment uh, to the kettlebell work. So uh, I got into animal flow um, at my first uh, training job over here at Equinox. Um, Equinox has a lot of high-level trainers and they have high-level education. Um, and so I saw a couple of guys doing this animal flow stuff and I would make fun of it at first. Like, what are you guys doing crawling all over the floor and doing all this stuff. You know, I was very ignorant to the practice. I never seen it and it looked silly to me. So I would make jokes um, to my to my guys and my trainers who were master instructors in animal flow. And then one day he was like, come do it, you know, come try it. And I did it with him one day. And the way I felt, the way my body felt, um, I really felt like not only was I getting, you know, mobility and flexibility similar to yoga where that was missing in my training. I'm a football player. We don't really do much of that, right? But it was the, the feeling of me being stronger from these movements that I was like, I have to, I have to get into this because, you know, you're holding yourself up the whole time. You're, you're switching, transitioning, and you're working on your hands, and it really makes you very strong. And I'm a fan of strong. <clears throat> I don't know if you've noticed or, you know, I don't know if you know that about me, but with, when, I, when I work out, I just like to be strong. When I train people, my specialty is making people stronger, right? And so when I felt the strength that I gained from being somebody who I thought I was good on body weight, you know, I'm good at calisthenics, I'm lightweight and I'm pound for pound strong. So pull-ups have always been easy, push-ups have always been easy, but the animal flow movements challenged me in a different way. So when I, you know, when I sensed that and when I got a taste of that for the first time, I got addicted and I, you know, I haven't stopped from there. Well, strong to me is the foundation of everything. I think strong will make you fast. Strong can help you with your power. Strong is, it really is to me, the building block of everything else. And with respect to those animal flows, what I personally like is it almost makes you feel primal. I think having your hands and your feet on the ground 
especially the ground, like grass or dirt, mm -hmm. that really puts you in connection in my weird mind with the earth. And I just think it makes you more of, a, of an animal. You know, for lack of a better word, it does give you back those primal instincts that are probably lost from sitting behind a desk or looking at your cell phone all day. Hell yeah. And you hit it. You literally hit it right on the head with that. Right. Like, cause I wasn't, I wasn't even ready to go that deep with you as far as that. Right. But you said in my weird mind, it makes me feel more connected to the earth, but that's literally the, that's what it does. Right. And, and, you know, we don't have weird minds for thinking that way. That Like that's literally why I got deep into the practice because it makes me feel more connected to the earth, makes me feel more grounded when I do animal flow. It's a form of meditation for me. And I'm really into that stuff nowadays, um, you know, all the spiritual stuff. Um, so when I do animal flow and I really get into a flow and I close my eyes and put these moves together, it's a form of meditation for me. My mind-body connection is working and I kind of forget about everything else on the outside and I'm just focused in on me. And it's a beautiful moment to me. You know what I mean? Hallelujah, man. It's great when a guy uses training as a form of meditation in any form of training as a form of meditation. It's just, it's beautiful. Another thing, making the hair stand up on the back of my neck. <laughs> yeah. So my, my next question is, and the reason we had gotten linked, we just were talking a little bit before we hit the record button on this podcast was I had done an interview with coach Bali a few weeks ago. You commented on it on Instagram and was yeah. like, okay, let's make this happen between you and me getting a, a, a podcast going on. How do you know coach Bali? So Coach Bali, he's from the neighborhood. I grew up in Port Richmond. Um, and he's just, he's literally the guy in my neighborhood when it comes to training high school football athletes. If, if you're a high school football athlete, right, and you're in the Port Richmond area, you're in the Mariners Harbor area, you're in uh, the St. George area, you work with Bali. He's the guy, right? Um, he has all the knowledge. He used to play University of Delaware. You know, he has the background. He, he gives you a different mindset. You know, if you, if you ask any of these young kids in, in these neighborhoods and you say his name, they will tell you all about him, how they look up to him. He gives great advice. And I met him when I was training um, with you, actually. I was training with you coming out of college. And, you know, he was just closer in the neighborhood. Now, obviously, I had the connection with you because I went to see. Um, but, you know, everybody around my neighborhood used to talk about Bali, Bali. I met him trained with him a couple of times. I liked his training. I like what I like most about him is his mindset and how he tries to pass his mindset on to the young kids, right? Like he has a very different mindset. Um, and if you work with him, not only will you get physically better, but you, you're going to have a better mindset for it too. Um, so he's just a local guy. We're from the same neighborhood. Um, I know his sons, Zamel is my age, his oldest son. He played at Temple. I'm um, at the same time that I played at UConn. So local guy who trains all the kids in my neighborhood and I was kind of I was kind of feeling weird that I was in the neighborhood and I wasn't training with him you know so I met him while I was training with you I used to train with both you guys and then I trained with him too also um when I was playing arena football when I would come back home I would train with him he has a great movement going on with the behind my jersey movement um and he's doing big things for those kids in my neighborhood because without him those kids would be misguided for sure He's, he's a special guy. Like you said, and we talked about this on the podcast. I'm not saying anything that wasn't said before, but he, he's doing job mock job interviews with kids. Uh, right. You know, the, the training is just one thing, but he, I think he's using that as a forum to develop men, which he's certainly doing. And man, I love, I, I coach with him at Tomville high school. Now I love coaching with him just because of 
you feel his presence on the field. Like every practice that when he's there, it's, it's a different practice. Everybody's acting differently. Even I'm acting differently because coach Bowie's there. Yep. Yeah. He's just a, he's a, he's a different guy, man. He, he, like you said, he's, he's building young men in a, in a, in a community that needs that. Right. I think that's why that's so important. And that's why I really met him and wanted to be part of that because, you know, not everybody was me who had an opportunity to go to a Catholic school where the, the education was good and, and my setup was nice. You know, not everybody's like that. So he's really out there developing these young kids, not only to be good football players, but to be good men. Right. Because not everybody in the neighborhoods that we come from is, is guided in the right way. So he's really serving as a father, father figure to a lot of these young athletes. And I think personally that New York City football in general is more talented and in a bit better place single handedly because of the work he's doing. That, that is a, a hell of a compliment. And yeah, I, I see how many, it's a little tough when, uh, you know, if you're playing Curtis and he's, he's trained guys on Curtis, it's like, oh, he made that kid better, but right. <laughs> uh, that's not what it's always about. I, it's a tough pill to swallow, but yes, he has an, an in, a huge impact. And I, I he's a hell of a trainer, but I, I'll, I'm going to focus on the, the off the field stuff. It's just awesome to see the things that he does with kids, read books. Let's talk about the art of war. Let's talk about rich dad, poor dad. That That is awesome. He's building men, man. He's just not building football players. And that's why what he's doing is great. And his impact will be greater than anything that he does as far as accomplishments. I mean, his impact is, it, it's, it's, you can't even argue it. You know what I mean? Like his impact is so great. And I think that he doesn't get enough due for the impact that he's made on the, on the Staten Island football uh, scene specifically. Uh, it, it's coming. I feel like it's coming. He's he's getting more and more exposure now, but he's he's just grinding. I know that's why that's not why he's doing it, but uh, it, it's coming. It's certainly coming. And speaking of young men, if you had to go back and give your sixteen-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, there's no question about that, man. The one piece of advice I would give that young man is have a plan B, because. What you think is, is going to happen, you you on your road to, you know, you about to get your college scholarship, cool, you think you're going to go to the NFL, make sure you have a plan in place that if something goes wrong, you can fall back on because that's what I didn't have, right? I thought everything was going to be smooth sailing and I got cut from Toronto and got left on my ass not knowing what to do and things spiraled down for me mentally. If I had a plan B, if I knew what I was going to do when something went wrong on the road, I would have been fine, so... Number one piece of advice for 16-year-old me, get a plan B now. <laughs> now, is there an apparent failure in your life that eventually led to, to a huge success? Was not having a plan B, did that help you become a bigger success or was it something totally different? Um, that's a good question. I think, I think not having a plan B put some urgency on my situation. Um, it made me really go out and try things and to see what my next move would be. Um, so I think even though I would say get a plan B to my younger self, I think not having a plan B really put some some motivation and some why into finding myself after football a little bit. Um, so, you know, there's, there's good and bad there. Yeah, I've, I've heard people, you know, you ask them this question and some people would say, I wouldn't tell anything to my 16-year-old self because they need to learn to fail so they can become the me I am right now. 
So maybe, maybe it's a way of looking at it that way. Hey, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's another way too, right? Um, that's why I try not to have any regrets because anything that I did in my past life has, has made me the person who I am. And that adversity that I hit when I didn't make the league and I was trying to find myself, that made me into the person I am today too. Um, so like I said, there's good and bad there, but I definitely would like to see how my life would have went up to this point if I knew what my plan B was right after. As soon as I got cut from Toronto, okay, I'm here with it because I really had no direction. And having no direction for somebody like me who's had one direction my whole life was very scary and very new for me. So is your biggest regret in life losing a challenge at advanced training in 2010 to a very <laughs> young James Munson? Um... I, I, it's not a regret of mine, man. I gave it my all, man. Big up, shout out to James Munson. He did his thing. <laughs> uh, but I have no regrets, man, because one thing you know about me, coach, is I gave my all. So, <laughs> <laughs> And for those of people that don't know, James Munson, I think he might have been like a 12-year-old guy training with us. And I would use him as a means to piss off everyone in the crew. Like if Billy Blanco did 15 inverted rows, I'd be like, James Munson got 16 inverted rows this morning. Where are you at? <laughs> so, uh, Munson actually did compete against Lyle. I'm looking at, I think it's uh, May 10th. Sorry, May 4th. There was a chin-up challenge and James Munson won, although Lyle did a rock a, a good, a decent amount of chin-ups that day, 17. So uh, it was a good competition, but. Look, that, that James Munson also developed into an awesome man, went to Navy, and he said that training with you guys was a, like a pivotal, a seminal moment in his life to be able to train with such established football players at such a young age. Yeah, absolutely, and he was beating our ass in competitions too. Great. <laughs> I figured I'd still dig at you, Lyle, because I saw how much you hated to lose. Uh, <laughs> I guess we're going to get into some more rapid-fire questions right now. All so right. one of them is, if you think of success – in St. Joseph by the Sea football, who comes to, to mind and why? Um, I would have to say me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to be cocky, but it's true. Um, I, I, got, I, I went to sea on a mission, which I think was, was, was different than most people. Um, and, I, and I really did what I set out to go to St. Joseph by the Sea to do. I was going to high school on the other side of town from where I lived spending an hour on the bus every day, just dedicated to one goal. And I got that goal done. So not to be cocky, but I would have to say me. Next, next rapid fire question. If there's one game from high school that you could go back and change, what game would it be? So if I was to change one game, I would have to change, and this is a very random game, right? But I would have to change my freshman year, I was playing JV and we played St. Anthony's at home and we lost by like a touchdown. And again, St. Anthony's was the big dog around. So that was my first time playing against them and we almost beat them. I feel like if we could win that game against St. Anthony's that day, my freshman year, it would carry over to the future of the program and how confident we would be against them. Because it was always a story of how we almost had it. We almost had it. We almost had it. And then my senior year, we finally beat them. So picture if my, my JV year with me, Teddy Glover, that whole crew that was playing JV with me, Andrew and Lane being, being freshman on varsity, that momentum it would have took us to into that next year playing St. Anthony's at home. I think we win that game against St. Anthony's at home, man. 
So that's the game. That that's freshman a deep year, answer. Maybe, freshman because year, most guys are looking at their senior year, maybe their junior year, but that's sick because yeah, that that might have changed the mindset of your team for the next three years. Literally, it would have changed the whole mindset and the trajectory. I think, even though the trajectory was still good, we still ended up being St. Anthony's my senior year. That group we were with, because it was just me, Andrew, and Lane, and it was it was the older guys we were with, Teddy, Blanco, and all those guys. Us together, that group, if we win that game, it takes us into, I think, the, not even the rest of the time, but the rest of that season and into the rest of the whole time, our career there, things would have been different if we won that game that day, because we were very close. Wow. Now, now Billy Blanco is going to be thinking this through uh, after listening to this podcast and be thinking it through all summer. <laughs> Probably. What um, do you hate more, not winning or losing? I hate losing. Why do you hate losing so much? Why do you hate it? Because you don't play anything to lose. The goal, the goal of playing anything and competing against anybody is to win. So if you don't do that, you failed and you have to go back to the drawing board and try again. I really, I really don't like being on teams with people who think losing is okay. It's not okay. If losing is okay, don't participate in the activity. We're is, here to is the, and this is probably how I should have phrased the question. Is the pain of losing worse than the enjoyment of winning to you? I think the enjoyment of winning is better than the, the pain of losing. Even though I hate to lose, it feels good to win, especially, you know, we're talking about football here. When you, when you win a football game, you were more physical than that team and you imposed your will on that team. That feels good. You know? And that seemed to me, that's a healthier mindset than, than a guy like me where I actually hate losing more than I enjoy winning. And it just kind of always puts you in a, a negative spot. So that is a healthier mindset to actually enjoy when you do win. Yeah. But I think you need a little bit of that not wanting to lose and thinking about losing and, and how horrible of a feeling that is and thinking about that and having that energy drive you to win. You need at least a little bit of that. A hundred, a hundred percent. Next rapid fire question. If you could run with any other back aside from Armado, who would it be? So, and a C running back. We'll keep it specific. Oh, double wing in the C. I would have. I would have loved to see me and Brennan work together. Was he uh, two years older than you? Yeah, two years. So I played. I played on his team. I was a sophomore on varsity playing with him, but we weren't the one-two punch. I kind of. I started at safety and then I rotated in at running back. But it was him and Teddy. Um, but. We'll, we'll count him. I'll, I'll give another running back that I that I really enjoyed watch running that I would have loved to play with was Argello. And he was, I think, three years older than you, right? Yeah, I remember yeah. watching him play his senior year against St. Anthony's at home when I was a freshman on JV. Is that the uh, infamous 36-35 uh, loss with the, yep. uh, the, the yep. missed field goal? Yep, that's exactly why I, I remember being there live. And I just remember, I remember that day watching that game and just wishing that they, like, I was mad that they didn't give the ball to a Jello whenever they didn't give it to a Jello. Like, I remember that. Because I'm like, he's running so hard and he's the only one. I felt like he was like the one on the offense that was leading the charge where he wasn't like, 
fearful of St. Anthony's. He was running people over. He was making big runs. And I, I was just liking the way he was running. And so when they would give the ball to Murph, I'm like, Murph is cool. Let's get Ojello going, please. You know, so I remember feeling that. I remember in that game, I believe Coach Hench had put in a, a quick toss to Francis Consamagno that was also destroying – it was new in the playbook. They just yes. tossed our fullback, the ball, out in space, and people were so focused on Ajello that now this little Francis guy was running all over the place. So it was a, a nice uh, one-two punch. Oh, yeah. Man, we scored 35 points against them, and I think we fumbled the punt return. So, like, we lost possessions and still scored 35 points against them. Yeah, they couldn't stop you guys. Next rapid-fire question. PG, please, what is your favorite Coach Mano saying of all time? My favorite, the one that sticks with me is, is football is a violent game played by violent men. I think Hoorah. that. I believe that's uh, one of the most viral YouTube videos out there for uh, New York City football. But yeah, hoorah. And I, and I just think that saying, I, I think that was my favorite saying because it put me into the mindset that we had to have in order to to play this double wing offense. And then that mindset, I carried that over to my division one day. So it gave me that toughness, you know, it just put me in that mindset. You know, you know, you know, you got to flip a switch on when you turn that helmet on. So when you just think of that violent men, game played by violent men, you need to be a violent man or else you're going to take, you know, getting taken advantage of. So that saying really stuck with me even till this day or, or the latest days of my football career. We talked about the challenge before, you versus Munson. Uh, if you had to pick an advanced training challenge partner for life, who would it be? For life? For life. You're stuck with this person. You guys are married and, and challenges together. <sighs> Glover. Ooh. And who, Glover. what tag team would you like to go against? I want to see me and Joe Glover go against I'm trying to think who are the strong guys back in this is just advanced training or are we talking about like the high school yeah, yeah, this is advanced training there's no like you can't bring in rick flair or hulk hogan or a batman this is uh people that trained in advanced training um i would like to see me and glover go against barazi and teddy that that's a good that's a good battle right there and uh, Glover is certainly in freak status. So you two guys together is, is very scary. Very scary. Yeah, we're the pound-for-pound pound kings, man. We small, but we strong as hell. What is one thing that you know right now about training that you used to believe was false? Hmm. One thing that I know about training right now that I used to think was false? Is that right. the like for me, maybe you talked me into kettlebells. I don't know. Um, so I used to think that, you know how they tell us when you squat, when you lunge, or when you do anything, if your knees go over your toes, that's bad for the knees? Yep. I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> I am with you. And Lyle, I had some people asking me questions about this, like, why didn't you stress this with us? Because, uh, you know, Ben Patrick is now getting a lot of notoriety right now. But I will say 20 years ago, there was legitimate teaching of your knee cannot go past your toe. Look at this guy's lunge. It's awful. His knee's going over his toe. So uh, yep. I am 100% with you on that. It, my mind has certainly changed in the last few years on that. 
Yep, me too. And I've actually, I've been implementing it into my training a little bit to kind of test it out. And I can literally, like, I can feel my knees getting stronger. My tendonitis is gone. And so, like, I can attest to this. And I really think that I, and, and I can really think, you know, I really think too that that teaching is, is causing a lot of these non-contact ACL injuries. I'm, like I'm also a, thinking that when you're not stressing getting your knee over your toe. So I had done studies outside of Ben Patrick and they were saying like, look at every great athlete. We'll just take basketball for a second. And you see clips of uh, Jordan, LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, their, their shin angle, their knee is so far over the toe as they're driving to the hoop. And it's like that mobility in your ankle and that strength of your foot is really a differentiator in how you can change directions. So aside from just the health aspects that Ben Patrick's talking about, I think it absolutely makes you a better athlete by having that, that mobility. So we're doing ankle rockers all the time in our training to try and work on that. In addition to the Ben Patrick stuff. Okay. Yeah, man. I'm, 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 I'm a big believer in that stuff. And too, like, I think it's perfect for somebody like me who. I used to be an athlete, high level athlete, and I want to keep that same high level athleticism. This style of training is perfect for me. I don't have to, I don't have to, you know, barbell squat 350 anymore. You know, I really don't want to do that anymore. So, you know, we're doing some ATG split squats and some, and some, you know, some Peterson step ups to just make our, our, our tendons a little springier. And like you said, it makes you a better athlete at the end of the day too. So like, I'm oh, excited. I, I love your video with the ATG split squat and your VMO was absolutely firing. Love you it. Saw, yeah. 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 So, you know, I'm a believer in it. I've been doing it and I'm going to continue to do it and see where it takes me. And I'm curious to see where it takes my athleticism too, because like, you know, you see Ben Patrick and he got so much more athletic and he can dunk now. Like I kind of have that elite athleticism already. I'm, you know, I'm five, eight, I can touch the rim. I can dunk. So I want to see if it can take me to even further levels because I haven't trained like this at all in my life ever. You know, it's always been, don't put your knees over your toes. So now that it's like, I've been training this way, I could, I want to see if this unlocks new levels, you know? Maybe you'll be touching the back of the, the top of the backboard now. Yeah. Right. I'll be, I'll be jumping like Nate Robinson. I'll be doing <laughs> slam dunk, you know, contests at five, eight. So we'll see. Uh, I don't know if you, you heard this tip. Uh, I'll share it with you if you hadn't. Those ATG split squats to put a band around your back and tie the other end of that band around a pole so that it's pushing you into the pole. And essentially, it's driving you into the split squat. And then you have to actually resist that force. So I started experimenting with it this week. And, mm. and it took those ATG split squats to a complete and total different level. Jeez. I may have to try that. I may have to give that. it a shot, man. It was it was eye opening. I, I think the number one thing specifically on the ATG split squats is my hip flexors. I can feel yeah. my flexors lengthening when I do them. I'm like, yeah, this is crazy. Like that's that's the thing I feel the most is my hip flexors lengthening. And I thought I had good hip flexor flexibility already, but that's what I feel the most. Like my hip flexors burn after I do these. I you know what, man? I'm glad you said it because that. I thought it was going to be other stuff. I thought it was going to be my VMO. I thought maybe it might be my ankle mobility because I have my front foot raised. But yeah, it was my hip flexor was popping in a good way each right. rep. 
Right. It really like I was feeling real pain. Like the first week I did them, I'm like, sheesh, what the fuck's going on? And so like now when I do them, I can really feel how like my hip flexor is more flexible now because I do these. It's crazy. You try that bend. Again, bands wrapped around your back, pulling you into the pole, and you're squatting in the opposite direction of the pole. Uh, it, it's actually in the same direction of the pole. No, you're squatting in the opposite direction of the pole because the pulling into the bar. You're going to feel it even more. Let me know what you think about it because I, I thought it was pretty sick. So when you say band around the back, is that I'm, – I'm confused. Is that like the band is around your waist? or what Yes, is, the band is around okay. your waist. Okay, so one, you're facing the opposite way of where the band is resistant from? No, you're facing the way that the band is resisting from. So the band is pulling you into that lunge, and you have to overcome oh, the band's forces. You have backwards. to push. Oh, okay, I get it. I got to try that one. Sheesh. Yeah, it's counter to the way you'd think it would work, but it, it really does pop that hip flexor. All right, last two questions, man. Uh, this is a. Hopefully, you remember what the West Shore Expressway is now that you live in Miami, but. <laughs> If you could put a billboard, anything on a billboard on the West Shore Expressway in Staten Island, for those of you that don't live in Staten Island, what would it say? Swing kettlebells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Buy kettlebells, swing kettlebells. Something, some advertisement for kettlebell training and its and its benefits, man. That would you be my. You ain't kidding about loving kettlebells, man. You, you're no, true. Yeah. I love it. No, right, it's, last... um, it's a passion, the passion. This is the last question. Uh, this is a selfish question. I ask every single person on this podcast, because again, I am a minimalist. Maybe I'm an essentialist. I don't know. But what is one thing you could help me do to remove clutter or simplify my life? Take out all those heavy ass barbells and all that weight you got in your garage and just use kettlebells. Uh, you, you, you might have me thinking about it. Well, I got weight trees in there. I got a, a giant tire in my garage. I got sledgehammers. Maybe I don't need any of this stuff and just replace it with like three or four different kettlebells. Replace, you know, your, your, your freaky equipment that you don't really use that you need. Get it out of there, especially if it's taking up space and buy you some more kettlebells so you can use them. And you, you, you know Pavel well, so you can go dig down the rabbit hole so you can learn the proper techniques and the exercises. And do your thing, man. That's all you need. Swings and dips, man. That's it. You, you might see me at Kettlebells and Brunch in a few years. <laughs> I hope so, man. I hope so. Wow, this has been awesome. I, I'm glad we caught up. I, I learned a hell of a lot, not only about you, but about your, your story and training and having this conversation. Uh, thank you for coming on. Any last words for the audience uh, before we punch out? Absolutely. Uh, I have some last words for the audience, man. Coach Mahoney is one of the best trainers I've had till this day. I've had a lot of trainers. I've been training since high school through college. I've met a lot of strength and conditioning specialists. None of these specialists that I've met through all these levels have had the impact that Coach Mahoney had on me when he trained me before I left for UConn. Um, what you're doing with the podcast is great. I'm happy that you still got the advanced training thing going. And I just want to really pay homage to you and, and what kind of guy you are and the impact that you had on my life. So I just want to say thank you for the part that you played in my journey. Um, and I just want to let everybody on this podcast know that you are the real deal. If you are thinking about doing advanced training, you need to just go ahead and jump on the other side of the fence and dive in because you won't regret it. 
Coach Mahoney has years of experience. He's worked with great athletes and he knows his stuff. So get with him. Advanced training is the movement. Coach Mahoney, thanks for the role that you played in my life. I'm glad that you got this platform going so you can continue to grow it. And just like I was talking about Bali before, man, how the impact that he's had on those North Shore kids, I think you've had the same impact on the South Shore kids, how everybody looks up to you. You got guys that we played with in high school still training with you. And so just wanted to pay you that homage and say thank you. I, I appreciate that, man. I re I, that's very humbling. And thank you very much. Uh, me it means more than you know. And Lyle, where, where should people go to find you and what you're doing and what you're doing with your training? So if you want to find me and my most recent happenings, I'm on Instagram at Lyle McCombs, L-Y-L-E-M-C-C-O-M-B-S. That's where you can see all my kettlebell training content, um, all the services that I have available to you, my online training services. I put programs together for people. I teach people how to use the kettlebell correctly, correctly excuse me, and effectively. Um, I think one thing about the kettlebell that people are misinformed is that they think they can just watch somebody on Instagram, go pick up the kettlebell and go do it. Um, but me, I'm a kettlebell coach and you have to learn these techniques the right way before you go off and swing kettlebells on your own. And I offer the services to help you to be able to do that. So at Lyle McCombs on Instagram, L-Y-L-E-M-C-C-O-M-B-S. Follow me, give me a holler, send me a DM. If you want to get into this kettlebell training journey, I'm the guy for it. Awesome. Love it. Uh, Lyle, thank you again for coming on. I I'm excited because I know a lot of guys had questions that they were embedded into this list of questions I asked you. So I'm excited to hear their responses uh, based on your answers. So thanks again, Lyle. Good luck to you. I look forward to watching you on Instagram and I'm going to start picking up a little more kettlebell stuff. I'm going to be a man of my word here. Yeah, man, please do. If you if you follow Pavel, you don't really follow Pavel like you say you do if you're not swinging kettlebells, Coach. So Yeah, I'm only 50% in, man. I'm only 50% in. <laughs> No, but I, I appreciate you having me on. It was a pleasure. It was great talking to you. Great catching up with you. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Lyle. Thank you. Talk to you soon, man. Bye. All right. Talk to you soon. This episode is brought to you by Zero Shoes, a company that is perfectly named. Why? Because when you're wearing their shoes, you feel like you're walking around completely and totally barefoot, a.k.a. like you're not wearing any shoes, a.k.a. like you are wearing zero shoes. Now, we've all heard the benefits of barefoot training, but who wants to walk into a gym without any shoes on your feet? First of all, it's gross, and second of all, it's disgusting. Now, the other benefits of zero shoes is not only are they functional, but they're also fashionable. So, you've seen many a time people walk in the gym with these minimalist shoes and they look like a freak. Not with zero shoes. You're going to blend right in. Also, they have a wide toe box so that your toes are not all scrunched together in the front like they normally are with any standard training sneaker or cleat. Now, to get your shoes, go to zeroshoes.com slash go slash Mahoney AT. Again, that's zeroshoes.com slash go slash Mahoney AT. And that zero is spelt with an X. It is X-E-R-O. Again, I'll say it again. It's X-E-R-O. Get your zero shoes today.